Welcome back to Saving Young Black Lives, Reversing Suicide Trends, a podcast series brought to you by the Central East Mental Health Technology Transfer Center and funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA. We are pleased to join our colleagues at the NYU McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research in presenting this series. The views, opinions, and content of this podcast are those of the host and speaker and do not necessarily reflect the views, opinions, or policies of SAMHSA. Welcome to this episode of Saving Young Black Lives. I'm your host, Michael Lindsay, Executive Director of the NYU McSilver Institute. We're glad to have you with us, but please be advised that this podcast series includes descriptions of suicide, suicidal behavior, self-harm behavior, violence, bullying, and other traumatic experiences. We're doing this podcast because we are at a ring de alarm moment in our nation with regard to the mental health of Black children and teens. This has deepened since 2020 when twin pandemics stalked our communities in the form of the COVID-19 pandemic and a racial reckoning for violence by law enforcement. In fact, the CDC reported in June 2020 that 25% of young people ages 18 to 24 reported that they had seriously considered suicide in the previous 30 days. So did 18% of Hispanic people and 15% of Black people. This compared with 10% overall. The reasons for this trend still need to be determined, but we know that racism has an impact on mental health. And the trauma of racism affects not only its direct victims, but those who are merely in the vicinity. A study led by Jacob Bohr at Boston University looked at police killings of unarmed Black people and found that if you live near or in the vicinity of a police killing of an unarmed Black person, Blacks were likely to report poor mental health days related to the killing. Whites were not. Our guest today studies ways to reduce racial stress and trauma in order to improve the psychological well-being and functioning of families. Dr. Rihanna Anderson is an assistant professor in the Department of Health Behavior and Health Education at the University of Michigan's School of Public Health. She is also the developer and director of the Embrace Intervention, Embrace standing for engaging, managing, and bonding through race. Welcome to the show, Dr. Rihanna Anderson. Thank you so much, Dr. Lindsay. So Dr. Anderson, please tell us about the research you're doing related to mental health and what inspired you to get into it. Yeah, so one of the ways that I've been talking about it lately is how do we drop kick the relationship between discrimination and mental health outcomes? So if you're a dork like me, you've engaged in research all these years, you, you know that we do a lot of models, a lot of statistical associations between an X and a Y. So whenever I'm teaching, whenever I'm presenting, I'm looking at discrimination and this very clear line between it and these mental health outcomes for Black youth. And it's a strong line. It is a very consistent, pervasive, and strong line. And what we're trying to do with intervening, another way of talking about that, like I said, is dropkick. How do, how do we annihilate this line? How do we 
if racial discrimination continues to be something that is within our world, right? If it's a stressor that we know exists, it's a social determinant of health. We know it's a negative social determinant of health. How do we help to bend, break, annihilate that line? So that's essentially what we're doing in our lab. Knowing that this racial stressor is in the world, how do we actually impact it so that it's not negatively um, influencing or predicting children's mental health and well-being? So from a basic science research standpoint, we're looking at what are these relationships. We know they exist. We don't have to take too much time or do any additional studies. You've already named a few that show what happens when Black children and their families know that racism exists in the world around them. So that's already done. So then the next step is how do we do something about it? So we've taken a therapeutic approach we bring families in, we go to where they are, and we talk about race and racism. It's, it is the primary thing that we talk about and we think about how do we support families through the initiatives that they're already doing in their household to again, challenge this really pervasive and pernicious relationship. So is that what the essence of the Embrace Intervention is? Can you go into that in particular detail? Yeah, and I'll, I'll couple that with a bit that I missed from your last question. So we're thinking about how do we take these protective factors, right? So if we talked about the X and the Y, this really dynamic uh, prediction of discrimination to these outcomes, not, not only can we bend it, but there's something called a protective factor or a moderator, these variables that help to change the relationship between that discrimination and that mental health outcome. And by the way, when we're talking about these mental health outcomes, we're looking at depression in particular, anxiety, trauma symptoms. We're looking at some really um, consistent psychological outcomes that, that can negatively impact the well-being of our Black kiddos. So yes, Embrace is really thinking about if we have this protective factor of racial socialization, and that's a really tough word really to describe the talk, right? So the talk is something that a lot of Black families and families of color writ large engage in. How do we talk to our kids about what we're seeing in the headlines, what we're seeing on TV, and what are the conversations going to do? How, how do we help to provide coping strategies, not just telling them that these things exist, but what do we do to actually feel better, to actually engage in strategies to reduce that depression or that anxiety, that trauma symptom that we're talking about that's being caused from racial discrimination. So I'm getting into this work because I know that with my family growing up here in Detroit, there were times where there were issues going on in our community and my family was this protective force around me. So whether that was racism or violence or a number of other things that from a social uh, determinant of health standpoint existed in that community. And it was, it was a bit challenging to, to get at that as the root of some of these problems. But if we weren't able to uproot that, what could protect me as a child from some of those predictors? It was a family and it was our conversations. It was our strategies that we thought about. So when I look at the families who are in this world who have done an amazing job of protecting their children from the world, I mean, can you imagine being a child who's being thrown into these racialized stressors, who's seeing the world around them, watching a nine minute, 29 second video that's viral, it's on TV, it's on their phones, it's everywhere. And so you're this child now in this space 
And a, a parent's job is to protect you, to make you feel safe, to make you feel like you can make it the next day, but you're watching everyone around you not make it. Right. Like that, that's, a, that's a tough job, right? So these parents now are doing this tremendous work of keeping our children safe psychologically and physically. And what we're trying to do is, is now say, listen, we've got some data, we've got some suggestions, we want to help to support what it is that you're doing because you're already doing such an amazing job. That's phenomenal. So, you know, I, I think you have so much, Dr. Anderson, to offer to the world uh, in this moment, in this conversation, for those who are going to listen or view this podcast. And something that you've covered, but I want to go into it a little bit more detail because they may there may be naysayers who say, well, how can racism actually lead to depression or trauma or anxiety? What, what do we mean by that? Yeah. So first of all, you're welcome to at me at any time. You can at me, you can email me. I'd love to talk with you if you are a naysayer. And there are plenty, right? So even in the papers that we write, we get a lot of pushback about what is this racism that you're talking about? How does it impact Black kiddos. So generally speaking, we know that there are stressors that exist in the world. So it can be a unique incident. So um, if one person loses their job, that might be a stressful situation, or they, there may be a system of stressors. So perhaps uh, food insecurity for, for some people where food is something that they don't have on a consistent basis or socioeconomic struggle. That's, that's, that's more longstanding. That's going to chip away at people um, at a longer rate. Those are things that we know can cause people to worry. It can cause stress. And those things can tumble into uh, symptoms of depression, feeling like you can't concentrate, feeling like you can't get up off the couch, not sleeping well, not eating well. So, so all of these things are related. That racism is a pernicious, consistent stressor. And I'm actually going to have to push back on something you said to introduce this. You call racism a pandemic. And I was with you um, all of last year. I was a part of the crowd saying, yeah, this dual pandemic. But we're doing our research. And racism is actually an endemic problem. Mm -hmm. It is part of the fabric of mm -hmm. America. There would be no United States without racism. So, yeah. so that means it's not time limited like a pandemic. That means it's not coming out of nowhere like a pandemic. That means it is part and parcel of our country and the way that we were able to afford what we have today to live the way that we do that, the way that we're hoarding the vaccines for something that we did irresponsibly. Like that is a beautiful illustration of what endemic racism looks like to, to capitalize on the differences within people and, and to create oppression. So, so I, I have to say that because for some people, racism is such a part of their lives that they can't see it, right? Like the virus, even though there may be naysayers about that, you may have seen people die. You may have seen those numbers go up on CNN, but for racism, people are like, I, I can't detect it. I can't see it. I can't feel it because it's around you everywhere. It's in the water, it's in the air, it's a part of who we are, it's a part of this fabric. So I'm, I'll put a bow on that to say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to say, you know, racism 
leads to all of the, those outcomes that I was just talking about, financial insecurity, job loss, uh, food, like anything that is a part of our daily life or anything that's a unique stress or racism can lead to that or racism can independently be displayed through racial discrimination or the behavioral way that racism leads to uh, in independent outcomes, right? So we're looking at structure, we're looking at interpersonal stuff, we're looking at uh, institutional, we're looking at every level and layer that race has been a factor in our world, that leading to increased stress, that leading to increased instability for people, and those wheels turning into, I'm not able to function the way that I normally would, ergo depression, anxiety, trauma, et cetera. Wow, wow. Well, thank you for the reframing <laughs> of uh, it's an endemic, right? Endemic. Endemic, yeah. yeah. Not a pandemic, but endemic. Yeah. So it, it, this is interesting because of how you frame that, because it somewhat segues into the next question, but you may have a twist on it given the description, the 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 appropriate description of uh, the sort of racial reckoning or those matters related to race as being an endemic, right? Um, and so I've often described that mental health trends that we are seeing in our youth as being a ring the alarm moment. Uh, what developments are you seeing that ring the alarm for you? Yeah, so you're right. There are things that are burgeoning that are more specific to this time relative to racism in our history. And so that, that might be odd for some people, some people who think that racism was really prevalent and, and super challenging in other periods of our history, sure. um, yeah. right? So th those are folks who are like, well, why didn't we see some of those things then? Right. So there are really two reasons to me that we're seeing changes now. The first being the, the way in which our youth are making sense of who they are. So that there's so much media, that there's so much social media and that they're uh, able to have these comparisons of themselves in their hand at all times, right? It used to be that we would go in front of a TV as a family. We would go to a theater as a family or friend group. It, it would be time limited in which you'd see these optimal ways of being or these, you know, super polished folks in, in the Hollywood. So now you're seeing everyone all the time using filters, using the best representation of themselves whether you're there or not as a parent, right? Like your kids are intaking all of this constantly. And there are studies that demonstrate just how challenging that is to one's internal makeup, like who I think that I am. And ironically, it's causing more isolation and loneliness. So the thing that you think is connecting you to all these people is actually keeping your eyes focused here. When you're out to eat, when you're out engaging with human beings, you're more focused on what's going on in this device. So social media has plenty of good. I don't wanna just completely throw it under right. um, the bus. It has plenty of good, but it also is has been shown to uh, really attack the well-being, the, 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 uh, the social structure, like who I think that I am is really being impeded by some of this uh, social media. 
I would a quick appendix to that is that you're also seeing racism flare up on that social media uh, space. So people who are anonymous, people who don't have to confront you to your face, um, you don't know where they live. Somebody just sent me an email the other day after something that I did saying that I say the word stress with an H in it. And they brought a few other, they, they literally wrote down things that I said over a 30 minute interview and said, I need to get my education up and blah, blah, blah. It took 10 minutes out of my day to process that. This anonymous troll who came after me took 10 minutes out of my life after something that I did and had me question, did I get a good education? Like, am I smart? That's, that's the insidiousness of the, this online kind of profile and platform that we're taking the mind, uh, the, the assurance, the uh, confidence of these young people away because folks are starting to nip at them on these platforms um, in which they can't process it. It's not a two-way dialogue. It's one way you're getting this information and then that person can disappear. So that, that's kind of the social and the digital kind of space. The other, and this is a bit more nuanced, but um, over time, when uh, cultures adapt to the space that they're in, some of those initial strategies that came with the first generation of something, um, and you see this a lot in acculturation or immigration, that some of those strategies start to dissipate a bit. And again, we talked about racism being part and parcel of our environments. It's in the, the ether, it's in the air, it's in the water, it's everywhere that we are. And when families may have first been exposed to that, there may have been a, here's how you cope with this, here are our strategies, we're all on board with how we do this. And over time, as generations become more acculturated into this culture, there is more of an acceptance of this is just how it is. This is how it's going to be. There's not too much that we can do about it. We've lived with it thus far, we're gonna make it. And so that, that starts to um, erode a bit at our ability to name it, see it, do something about it. And it, it feels like it's normal. So that, again, that's a bit more nuanced and it's a bit harder to explain, but um, as generations progress within any culture, you see a, a decrease in coping strategies and an increase in these negative psychological outcomes like depression and anxiety. Wow, thank you for that such eloquent uh, breakdown um, of, of the trends in, in terms of what you're saying. I'm, I'm very sorry to hear that uh, you had the troll um, that disrupted 10 minutes of your day. Yes. But I do I do want to stay in that space for a moment and and ask as a as a scholar, practitioner, advocate, um, a person of of, of color, of, right. of black woman, how how do you um, protect yourself um, and also emphasize that this is something that's not going away, right? Like this is, you know, something that you just can't get over, that it's real and it impacts us, right? So how do you keep yourself affirmed, strengthened in that moment of, you know, that person, naysayer comes along and just tries to doubt, place doubt in the 
credibility of your of 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 your of your statements and and the work that you're doing how do how do you you know stay strong in that moment yeah yeah it's a great question we have a shared coping strategy so we we both uh frequent first corinthian baptist church in harlem uh with pastor mike warren who last summer delivered such a mighty message on this and and it had to have been ordained by god the way that it happened so it was a sunday of uh i believe september or so and one of the messages that that Pastor Mike was delivering was around uh, looking for likes, right? And so you were trying to, the, the message talked about where are you getting your affirmation? From whom is it important to, to hear these things? And what was so beautiful, especially because you and I are talking about child structures and family structures, right? Pastor Mike used therapy. He was saying some of you were hurt in your childhood or some of you didn't get what you needed in your childhood. And now you're looking for something now to affirm you. And then some other people who were hurt in their childhood have grown up and they're doing things from their childhood that were never rectified. And now the two of you are in a space together where you're searching and seeking for that thing you never got. And that person is projecting the stuff onto you that they think is okay, right? All the trauma and stuff they're putting onto you. So if you're looking for things, you're gonna continue to get damaged because damaged people are damaging you, right? Like that, that kind of thought around, you can't have that external validation constantly because people are fallible. People are not gonna give it to you the way that you need it. And so I bring that up because that week I was engaged in a, a Twitter chat uh, with a really uh, large, a, a network that had a large following. Mm -hmm. And there was a concentrated effort of trolls who waged about 30, 35 messages calling me every name under the sun. Some said I was too light to be effective. Some said I was too dark to be white. Like it, it, it just, it was the most ridiculous wage of vitriolic terror that I had a, like seen yet like it was just so bad I heard stories about it but then it happened yeah. and I closed my computer immediately you know talked to a mentee about that message and said had I not got that message I wouldn't have been shored up I wouldn't have been in a space where I would have said I know who I am I know what I'm talking about my validation is not coming from those people. I have to be able to, to stand on my two feet and say, I said what I said. I know the literature. I'm being factual. And, and that's that on that, period. Close laptop, close phone, and walk away. So that experience in, in September prepared me for Jay, the, uh, the troll this week, where He's the, if the only thing that you can say about my 30 minute interview is that I add the letter H, which is a socialization strategy that we are taught in various cultures to pronounce words in certain ways. You also don't know if I have a list. You don't know anything about me. And if that's the only thing that you can talk about that I did my job, I absolutely, I killed that segment. You're welcome, Jay. I did that. What else you got to say? Be blessed. So, so that's kind of where I'm at. My validation is not coming from Jay. It's not coming from anyone else. For me as a spiritual being, it's coming from God put me on this earth to have a purpose and to conduct that purpose thoroughly. And I, I believe I'm doing that. We'll be back in a moment with more of Saving Young Black Lives 
Reversing Suicide Trends. In this season of Saving Young Black Lives, Reversing Suicide Trends, we're hearing from survivors, parents, and experts about what it will take to stop a growing crisis. But no, I, I've been struggling with mental health challenges for my entire life, and it started as behavior problems for me. I was behaving badly. I was constantly in trouble, constantly getting yelled at, and I thought I was a bad kid. Walking to my car with my son on my shoulder. Buddy, we still got time. This is not what you had to do. I knew that my son was with God. Now, I like to say that the body is a truth teller, right? So it will tell you <laughs> that something is wrong, something is not well, something is not right. So those strategies, again, when we're talking about um, the talk, that's something that we do. And the cost of not having the talk is people being able to wage whatever they want to say or do to your child and your child having no buffer, no pillow, no exposure to that being a systemic problem. So now they think it's me. I'm the only one that's being impacted like this. There's something wrong with me and what I've done. Better mental health for our Black youth starts with us. The Central East Mental Health Technology Transfer Center, funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, in partnership with the NYU McSilver Institute, is talking about Black youth suicide trends with people who know. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Lindsay. Join us. We're back with more of Saving Young Black Lives, Reversing Suicide Trends. I want to segue to the work that you do with parents um, in terms of how do they talk about uh, racism to their children? Yeah. So I think in the same way that we just were able to say, here are these examples of what happened in my life. We look for examples in either the lived experience of these families or what's going on in the world. So it's not hard to find something that's going on. And in fact, as we were celebrating, or for some, the uh, Chauvin verdict, now, like I, I had maybe 10 seconds of celebrating with the class that I was teaching. And then a friend texted me about Micaiah Bryant. And I was like, I, I, we didn't even get a chance to have any celebration before we learned about a 16 year old girl who was murdered, not a woman, not anything else, 16 year old girl who was murdered um, by police. So, you know, I, I bring that up because for some people who we work with, they actually say it's hard for me to, to, to think about my own example of this. That's not a judgment statement. We, we absolutely don't think that that's a problem. And again, because it's so pervasive and it's so much a part and parcel of who we are and what we see, it might be hard to say, I see air, right? Like that's, that's a challenging statement to say you can't see it until you get to a place that's smoggy or until you have to pull out, you know, a mask to protect your, your airways from being polluted, right? So you're in spaces where you know that something is wrong when it's heightened, but when it's so much a part of, of the environment, you don't even know that it's there. So for a lot of our families, that, that day one is actually a challenging time where they say, I can't identify it. So then that's when we have 
the bevy of things that we can choose from in the world to say, would this be an example of racial discrimination for you, right? So starting with the personal, moving to the, the environmental is something that we do. You know, as a follow-up to that, do you think that we should be intentional about discussing race with our children or you know you have some segment of folks who's who might say i just i want to get over it I, I don't want that to be uh, uh a hindrance to to my child making them think that because they're black uh latinx or whatever that they are uh going to be marginalized or they're going to have this uh you know weight tied around them that keeps them back or you know being progressive in ways that are productive to their lives, right? So like, what do you say about that? Um, should we be intentional? Um, or, or, or what about the parent who says, you know what, I, I don't want to, um, you know, have my child think that there are barriers uh, to yeah. what is possible in their lives. And then they might say, look, we had Barack Obama become president. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a vice president, um, mm -hmm. President Harris, black woman, right? So what do you, <laughs> how, do you, how do you reconcile that? Oh, it's my favorite conversation, Dr. Lindsay. It's, it truly is. It brings me joy, as you can see from my smile. I'm going to actually bring you into this, all right? So we're going to have a quick dialogue instead of yeah. me kind of preaching and teaching here. All right. All right, Dr. Lindsay, you travel a lot, yeah? Yes. Yeah. When you get on a plane, what happens? Uh, well, I buckle up, I get free flight instructions. Uh, nowadays, I'm wiping the seat off. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. So you're, you're not only taking your own precautions, but you're being told about precautions, right? So let's, let's dig into those instructions. What are those instructions about? In case of an emergency, mm. uh, you know, that uh, there are things in the in the in the plane things that i can do that should protect me at some level um it's not a you know uh fail proof or whatever the saying is but yeah. you know uh at least there are some instructions for me to to handle the situation that you know might be adverse yeah do you freak out when you hear those instructions uh i don't freak out, but certainly the thought comes across my mind that mm -hmm. something like this could happen. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, uh, it's, for me, it's a reminder to say my prayer and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and let, let the chips fall where they may. Beautiful. Thank you. And that, you know, folks, this was not scripted at all. I just, you know, we just went into it. So let me, let me tell you why I have a talk entitled treating racism the way that we do plane crashes, buckling up for our safety. Wow. So we talk about this in the same exact way that we would as public health professionals with preparation and um, uh, prevention. When you go onto a plane, there are instructions, as Dr. Lindsay beautifully just explained to us, that keep you safe. Now, here's the thing. If a plane is crashing down 10,000 you know, miles from the sky, it, the, the first thing that you do is probably not going to be, let me think about all these things that I just learned. You're probably going to freak out. But at some point, you're going to think about what are the strategies that I've been taught to engage with this uh, this. Oh, you said it. this emergency, right? So how, how do I engage with this thing 
that is potentially life-threatening. When we talk about race and racism, we know that an outcome is potentially a life-threatening outcome. We know that. There is no question around the levels, the percentage, the exaggerated effect for Black and Brown folk. And, and, and we need to really emphasize Brown because our Native uh, colleagues are, or counterparts are absolutely um, experiencing a, a more heightened um, impact for a number of things, COVID, police killings, et cetera. And we don't talk about them enough either. But um, our Black and Brown folks are often engaged in these emergencies, whether it be life-threatening or the feeling of your life being threatened. When you go through turbulence, like you're immediately like, oh snap, there's a plane going to crash. You feel that in your body and in your mind. Mm. I, I bring up this example because in one of the years, I think it may have been 2018 or so when I was giving this talk, more Black people in the United States were killed by police violence than plane crashes or people killed in plane crashes in the entire world. I'll say that again. Wow. More people in the United States of America, it was about 450 or so that year, were killed by police violence relative to everyone who was uh, killed in a plane crash. It may have been about 433 or so that year in the entire world. And yet every time we go onto a plane, we are reminded here are the instructions to keep you safe. So the argument to me that people don't wanna engage in safety instructions with their children, with their students, with whomever the youth are around them flies in the face of things that we do constantly. And it's because we're so used to racism that we don't think we need to do anything about it. It's an emergency. It is a ring the alarm moment. It is something that we need to say is not okay. And we need to equip our children for that. You got me on a, a pastoral sitch. Yeah. I'm on my- <laughs> I don't know. That's ooh, so deep, so deep. So I guess my follow-up to that is, in essence, there is a cost for not having this discussion, it seems, uh, with, with, with Black children, um, other marginalized groups, as you mentioned. What is the cost? Yeah, and, and this is also really important because what I teach my child cannot necessarily keep them, quote, alive when someone else has something flawed within their mindset of who my child is. So I, I love to start with that because these, you know, BuzzFeed, the 10 top ways to stay safe, blah, 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 blah. I, I hate to say it, but you complying, that, that word that I just want to examine in every facet when I talk to folks, compliance or doing the things that you're being asked to do, we know is not sufficient for some people to not show their bias, to not show their racism, to not show their aggression towards children of color, right? So I just wanna start with that, that even if you have the most compliant behaviors, that's not necessarily what we're talking about with safety. So I'm a, I'm a child psychologist, so safety for me is psychological safety. It is how do we either reduce or prevent negative mental health outcomes, because at the end of the day, the behaviors of other people towards your child is not the thing that I can control, wow. right? 
So we've been trying with trainings and, and, and intervention strategies with, and I'm using police because they're the most robust, but with policing agencies or teachers or anyone in the community who works with black children, it's really hard to change those behaviors. We're gonna be able to do it. We're gonna figure out the science, we're working on it, but it's really hard to change social structures to change entire ways of thinking, policies, procedures, it's, it's hard to move those needles. But again, we can do that. But what we can do and what I'm trained to do is think about for individuals and for families, how can we help to protect them psychologically from some of that stuff that's coming at them? So those strategies, again, when we're talking about um, the talk, that's something that we do. And the cost of not having the talk is people being able to wage whatever they want to say or do to your child and your child having no buffer, no pillow, no uh, practical strategies, no um, exposure mm -hmm. to that being a systemic problem. So now they think it's me. I'm the only one that's being impacted like this. There's something wrong with, with me and what I've done. I'm going to internalize that. That's depression and anxiety and trauma. And I may not share it with you because you haven't shared with me that it's important enough to bring up, right? So that's the cost of not having those discussions. That is so deep. Thank you for, uh, you know, really covering that in, in such a vivid and accessible way. I do want to ask the counter of that, though. Mm -hmm. What about the parent who says that if I talk to my child about these issues, it's going to make them anxious? Yeah, it, it's the hopeless. Yes, yes. So there isn't, I'll start with just the, the headline. There isn't sufficient evidence to suggest that there are negative outcomes or at least more negative outcomes that come along with the talk. So I think your concern is, you know, I wanna validate that, I wanna say that I'm hearing you. What we would argue, and especially in the work that I'm conducting with my um, research, is that there may be things that you're bringing into the conversation that can impact your child's anxiety, hopelessness, et cetera. So it's, it's not enough simply to have the talk because the talk doesn't really say anything about us as parents or individuals when we're having it. We have to have competent talks and those competent talks come from us doing work first and asking ourselves, what are we bringing into this conversation? Have we had the ability to practice? Do we have the right materials and resources before we engage in this? Are we stressed out, anxious when we're having this talk with them. And then the kids are like, okay, I'm picking up on that. There's something to be super anxious and nervous about that leads them to, to feel that way. So it's not, a, it's not a pointing of a finger. It's not a blaming, but I really want to encourage parents to, to know that you are individuals with your own history. You have had your own socialization. You have experienced umpteen years of the world around you. So it requires you to also treat yourself first in the same way that we, again, talk about planes. You've got to put that mask on first before you attend to the needs of your child, because you're going to be able to uh, potentially handle a situation incorrectly if you're not grounded in who you are and, and breathing and believing that what you're saying is going to actually be worthwhile, that we can pass on some of that to our child. Oh, that's, that's deep. Um, 
Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that as well. Such clarity is happening. And uh, this is really awesome. Um, what gets in the way of better mental health for our youth? Ooh, now that's a question. Okay, what gets in the way? Well, we'll start with stigma. So that that's something that I'm actually, I'll, I'll, and I'll actually address it in the positive first, because today's youth, man, I'm telling you, like these, oh, the TikToks and the, you know, the awareness, we can talk about Naomi Osaka today, who said, right, like, I'm not doing it. I'm not risking my own mental health and, and well-being for y'all. What a beautiful way of setting a boundary and saying, like, it's, it's not going to be me, right? <laughs> it could be one of us, but it ain't going to be me. Right. I love that. Like, that, that's a beautiful thing. And we're watching youth really take the banner of saying that mental health is important. I think the challenge, though, is that a lot of older generations, a lot of families, a lot of providers may be of the belief that, oh, you don't need that thing. And so maybe if you're talking to your children or you're the primary transportation for your child to get somewhere, you would have a tablet to give to your child for these uh, sessions, that, that may impact how uh, those children are able to access care, right? So I think that our, some of our beliefs for, as a culture, as a generation, maybe impacting our children's ability to, to access that care. Beyond that, we know for a lot of children of color, if they're living in urban environments in particular, the quality of that care is typically not as um, good as it might be in, in other spaces. The accessibility, like how many buses would they have to get on to actually get to that care, those are things that are challenging. And even during the quarantine when folks had more accessibility for tablets? Are we thinking about, do people have the tablets? Do people have the internet um, uh, to, to engage in that? Are there still challenges with insurance? You know, there are so many things that because racism is a structural problem, weren't just absolved with us going online. They were definitely aided by it, but some things still remain um, problematic. So beyond stigma, the very real structure of racism that impacts one's ability to access care. But I, you know, I think the biggest issue, Dr. Lindsay, is the way that within America are that rugged individualism that everybody um, is grinding culture. The, the, the thing that makes America America is to heck with our mental health, to heck with our physical health sometimes, to heck with all the well-being elements of who we are. We just gotta get it done. We gotta get to this finish line. Right. So the study that just came out recently about if you work five to 10 hours more per week than other people that you're more likely um, to pass early, like those things for me are, it's such a slap in the face of everything we've been taught. Just work hard, just keep going. But then you watch your family members' bodies and minds start to decay. You watch people who have been doing these grueling tasks uh, not have the space to process how challenging that is because nobody wants to hear about it. They just want that that product or that outcome. So I think so much of our culture just writ large in America is uh, mental health be darned. Like, you know, it's not that big of a deal for us. We'll deal with it later, like after we get the product from you. It's so extractive that that um, really uh, doesn't allow us to focus on mental health as a, a primary concern. Right. You know, your, your, your points make me think also about how, as, as people of color, we've also been conditioned 
that, you know, we have to work twice as hard, twice as much. And, um, and so that notion of uh, self-care and protecting your peace often gets uh, sort of flustered in this quest to, to be two times better than or work two times harder than because of the perception and weight of what we feel like we have to do because we are people of color. Yes, for sure. It's, you know, it's, um, it's layers of what culture is and can be, right? So there's intersections of our American culture with our individual culture, what racism makes us feel like we're doing. Again, even with the example I'm using about Jay, who taught, you know, took 10 minutes out of my life. Now I'm every few, you know, days just thinking like, did I say that word this way? Like it's, it's taking time and energy away from um, what I could be doing otherwise and having peace, right? So that's how it's just insidious and it works its way through um, our culture for sure. Yeah. And do you have any final thoughts that you think our listeners ought to know? You know, I, I was at the gym this past week and the trainer was talking about Detroit and Detroit is a, a wonderful place for many months out of the year, but when it's gray here, it can be really challenging to one's wellness. Uh, you don't feel like getting up. You don't feel like going into the cold. There's a lot that can happen physically and then emotionally and psychologically as well. So she mentioned having SAD, which is seasonal affective disorder, which is being impacted by the world around us, right? The, the gray or the temperature. Sure. And she said something to conclude her statement with, oh, it's just a mind thing. And if I had the time and the energy that day, if she had not just kicked my butt in training, I would have uh, talked with her more about this. And, and this is what I believe is very true for perhaps a lot of your listeners that will say, oh, it's just a mind thing. Oh, it's just mental health. It becomes this very secondary or flippant kind of, it, oh, it's, it's just that. And so I always encourage people to think about mental health as health. It is, it is a primary piece of who we are, of our health and our well-being, and you can't simply brush it to the side. I, I think about that SAD, the seasonal affective disorder. If you're viewing this visually, you might be able to see that there's a gray wall behind me. When I was developing my house, when I was painting, there was no like no indication that there would be a global pandemic that kept me housebound for 15 months, right? Like nobody knew that that was going to be a thing. So when I painted my house gray, I didn't think about, well, hey, in November in Detroit, it's going to be gray outside. And if you can't leave your house, you're going to have gray indoors and you're going to have gray outside and it's going to be gray all day. I hadn't thought about that. But this year in November, I saw it, I looked around and I said, I have to choose something radical to combat this radical stress that's going on. And for me, that meant I had to physically leave this space. I had to choose to go towards sun. So I moved my little self to Los Angeles for four months so that I could chase sun. If I had been of the mind that, oh, it's just a mind thing. It just doesn't matter. It's, it's just my mental health. 
I would have been exposed for four months to seasonal affective disorder, which I know doesn't make me feel good. I don't like it. It's not something that I want to engage in. If I'm not able to go outside, I can't be with people. That was really tough for a lot of people here. Right. But I'm, I'm sharing that because in the same way we might seek treatment for a physical ailment or the same way that we may do something to promote our economic well-being, anything that we do in our lives is a part of our wellness and mental health should not be secondary. It shouldn't be something, it shouldn't be an afterthought. It shouldn't be something that we just cascade to the side. It is a primary concern for us. And our mind really is all that matters to me. Like that, that should actually be, you know, atop many other things because it's, through your mind that you're able to do other things. So why would we put it on the back burner? So I just want to encourage folks when you're thinking about your health and your well-being to remember that your mind is such an important part of it. Wow. That's a great, great way to uh, end this conversation. Although we could talk for several more hours. Dr. Anderson, thank you for sharing your insights with us and for you're continuing the work to improve the mental health of Black families. It's so critical, it's so needed, and you are certainly on the front lines of that work, and uh, we are better for it. So thank you. I'm Michael Lindsay at the NYU McSilver Institute. Thank you for listening. I'm Dave Brown with the Central East Mental Health Technology Transfer Center. On behalf of the Central East MHTTC, I would like to thank Dr. Michael Lindsay, Executive Director of the McSilver Institute, and our guest speaker. I would also like to thank a production team from Advocates for Human Potential. You've been listening to Saving Young Black Lives, Reversing Suicide Trends. Many thanks to our guest, as well as the Central East Mental Health Technology Transfer Center, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, the producers and other staff members who have had a part in producing this show. The production team includes Oscar Morgan, Michael Thompson, Tamara Moreland, David Brown, Joe Manny, Zach Stewart, Cheryl Huggins-Solomon, Miles Martin, and Crystal Francis. Learn more about the Central East MHTTC Network at mhttcnetwork.org. Learn more about the NYU McSilver Institute and our work relating to Black youth suicide at mcsilver.nyu.edu. Thank you for listening.